0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you
1: enjoy this episode. Hola.
2: Hello. This call is being translated.
1: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
2: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
1: Wow. Ahora dime
3: sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. If you went on
1: a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive bottom at participating McDonald's
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today you're listening to a bonus episode produced by our friends from BBC Science Focus magazine, in which Robert Elliott Smith discusses the history and science behind algorithms. If you enjoy what you hear, then you might want to check out other episodes of the Science Focus podcast, which can be found on all major podcast providers as well as on sciencefocus.com. Meanwhile, we'll be back as usual on Monday with our next regular episode in which the award-winning historian Thomas Penn delves into the Yorkist dynasty who dominated the Wars of the Roses. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team with the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at
2: sciencefocus.com or look out
0: for us in your app store.
2: Hello, I'm Amy Barrett, Editorial Assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this week's podcast, we speak to Robert Elliott-Smith, an expert in evolutionary algorithms and researcher of artificial intelligence. His latest book, Rage Inside the Machine, explores how the harmful effects of bigotry, greed, segregation and mass coercion are finding their way into the AI that runs our lives without us even realising it. He speaks to online editor Alexander McNamara about how powerful algorithms have been manipulated to divide people, why algorithmic bias has a dark history in the field of eugenics, and what we can do to fight back against the insidious influences of social media.
3: Hi, uh, Rob Smith. I uh, have worked in artificial intelligence for 30 years. Uh, Most recently, I've written a book called Rage Inside the Machine, The Prejudice of Algorithms and How to Stop the Internet Making Bigots of Us All. Uh, I'm also a Senior Research Fellow of Computer Science at University College London, and I uh, am CTO for a technology company called Boxar.
1: So is it safe to say that you're, you know, quite an authority when it comes to things such as artificial intelligence and computer science in general?
3: I like to think so.
1: <laughs> so on that note, would you be able to tell us what, what are, um, you know, your book is uh, it's about the, the prejudice of algorithms and it's got a lot about artificial intelligence in there. Would you be able to explain what are algorithms and, and AI and, and, and how we've got to this position that we are, um, just, you know, how important they are to our lives at the moment?
3: Uh, algorithms are uh, well-stated uh, procedures, usually in computers today. It's interesting that the word comes from the name of a Arab uh, mathematician whose work was popularized in Europe by Fibonacci, and then uh, the word was uh, people who used the procedures, mathematical procedures in that book, uh, were known as algorithmist and uh, from from this arab name a, a, a kind of latinization of that name and then geoffrey chaucer uh anglicized it into Algorithm. So that's where it comes from. It means a well stated procedure. And uh, what is AI? Uh, I would say AI is algorithms that we happen to label as being something like human intelligence. But uh, usually they aren't a lot like human intelligence. There's very few algorithms that in any way even try to be like human intelligence, except in very vaguely metaphorical ways. And I actually prefer a term introduced by the science fiction author Neil Stevenson which is pseudo-intelligence, which I think makes it a little clearer that what what algorithms are doing today is really something that's a a sort of imitation of human intelligence. And where are algorithms today? Well, they're everywhere in our lives. They uh, are the things that pick out what news you get in your Facebook or Twitter feed. They are the things that pick out what Uh, matches are suggested to you on Tinder. Uh, They are the things that determine what jobs are assigned to uh, Deliveroo or Uber drivers, and many other people's uh, minute-by-minute work is assigned by algorithms. And they're even in things like criminal justice now, because uh, there are algorithms that are suggesting areas that police should patrol and suggesting to judges whether they should give parole sentences to, uh, to individuals who are, who are uh, seeking parole. So uh, effectively, algorithms are literally everywhere in our lives today.
1: So that sounds to me like they're uh, in the modern day. It's very much anything that's in a sort of digital world has have algorithms sort of ruled our not ruled, but been a significant part of our life. Um, maybe one day, who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> up up until now, was there a point in in history where suddenly they've taken on a much more prominent position?
3: Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think that uh, an algorithmic approach to looking at how humans interact and affecting how humans interact really begins quite a long time ago uh, and really made its way into our lives largely through economics, which is a way of looking at uh, economics was originally a a political science that was about how do we shape politics to affect a good society. And in time, it's become uh, uh, a way of a sort of quantified social science of human beings. And it's existed that way for quite a long time. I'd say the entry point is through quantitative social science and then ultimately economics. But recently, I'd say over the past 30 years, the years that I've been in AI, uh, it's become a part of our life's infrastructure, the way uh, electricity and water and roads are through the fact that most of us are involved with an algorithm most of our day. Uh, We're working online, doing online searches, looking at our Facebook feeds, uh, uh, looking at where to go to dinner, looking at uh, what job we might do next. Uh, So algorithms in the last 30 years have become an essential infrastructure of at least half the people on earth and uh, a growing number as as time goes by.
1: And I guess we don't really see these algorithms happening, but they are everywhere.
3: Yeah and and one thing I think that's really necessary is for people to realize that they are there that uh that uh, you know the the first area that I think people need to realize is the information that's curated to them that's delivered through searches and through news feeds is uh mediated and arranged by by algorithms. And those algorithms are, of course, using your personal data, the data of your, of who your friends are, uh, and lots of other factors to accomplish commercial and power-seeking aims. And and we're constantly, uh, your Google searches are shaped based on you. You don't get the same Google searches as other people. Your view of the news is shaped to you. You don't get the same news as other people. And ultimately, the, the commercial products that are suggested to you Probably more constantly than you realize, are are a version of uh, that feed that's directed at you.
1: So th- this feed that's directed at me, obviously, it's it's it knows my data presumably, which is how it can direct it at me. But who who are the people that are creating these algorithms?
3: Well, uh, it's it's a variety of people. Uh, certainly, the people creating them uh, most algorithms are lives. Uh, a lot of them come from the big five technology companies: uh, Google, Amazon, uh, Facebook. Um, uh, Apple, and uh, the, I'll get the last one if I thought about it for a moment, that uh, effectively a lot of the algorithms in our lives are suggested by those. But then there are lots and lots of other people in Silicon Valley who are writing those algorithms. Uh, and then there are people who are trying to influence those algorithms, particularly in social media. And we all know about the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the Russian troll farms that are that are trying to, to influence things on social media. They're sort of... Uh, they're sort of people who are playing with the algorithms that exist and the algorithmic reality we live in. They're trying to manipulate. So the algorithms are being written in Silicon Valley. The algorithms are being uh, pushed this way and that by many, many actors all over the place today.
1: So when you when you you, know, you mentioned what happened with the, the the troll farms, is there a problem with our algorithms in the fact that you know nefarious people can change them so that manipulate that what we're seeing in our feeds and everything?
3: Well, the, the the thing that I want people to, to realize more than anything else is that algorithms, while uh, massive and complex and manipulating extremely large amounts of data and, and somewhat intractable to human beings, are actually terribly simple-minded in many ways. Algorithms uh, basically have a very statistical and quantitative view of, of humanity. And because of that, they can be uh, manipulated. Effectively, I think... Uh, you know, if, if you watch the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack, uh, which is very good, by the way, and everybody should watch, and I do mean everybody should watch it. If you watch that, it's, it's a wonderful expose of, of what happened during the Brexit referendum uh, and during uh, the election of Donald Trump uh, through uh, Cambridge Analytica's attempt to manipulate people. Now, the one impression that can be left from The Great Hack that I think is um, something people should uh, be wary of is the impression that they had uh, psychometric models and big data analysis and AI that was so powerful that it made people putty in their hands. That's really not true. Algorithms are really very simple-minded in their understanding of people, and most people know this because they, uh, they get recommendations of books on Amazon, and they know that those recommendations are a bit crap, really. But here's the thing. Because we've seeded our social lives and our our news feeds to algorithms that we don't really understand, that has created a situation where people who do understand those algorithms can come in and basically segregate us right? Effectively, what Cambridge Analytica did is they basically used a form of informational segregation. They basically were able to say, okay, here are ways we can split up the social network based on simplifying features of people, uh, where they live, their age, their gender, uh, small political beliefs they have. And we can separate those people. And if we separate them finely enough, we can effectively do a sort of informational gerrymandering. That's what they were really doing. What they were doing is delivering information to small groups in such a way that they split votes in places, that they were able to split off votes such that they got the political uh, outcome they wanted. So they were simultaneously manipulating uh, this highly simplified curator of our news And the fact that we have uh, electoral systems that do things like, in America, the electoral college, in this country, first-past-the-post, so that those algorithms of how we select our elected officials coupled with this informational algorithm could be be manipulated to divide people. And that's really what's going on. And the thing people need to realize, going back to it again, is – Algorithms are really simple-minded. People who are able to to see that simple-mindedness can exploit it Um, and and also uh, something that my title of my book suggests is that simple-mindedness can be expected to divide people along um, traditionally prejudiced lines. Because effectively, when you simplify people down to simple features, unsurprisingly, you're going to have divisions uh, based on things like color of skin or or a religious checkbox or gender.
1: And so that that simple those simple algorithms are, you know, th- because they're so simple, in the sense what they can do, that's causing a, a, a bigger problem with just you know people and and how people see things.
3: Absolutely, and and and, and the thing is, is that uh, I. I being a guy who's worked in artificial intelligence my entire adult life, uh, I think it's great. I think there's great things that uh, I should use the term pseudo intelligence myself. There are great things pseudo intelligence can do. However, uh, when it's vaunted in the public media as basically saying that it's smart or smarter than people, that's enforcing a view of people that's highly simplified, you know, and a view of thinking. That's highly simplified. And when we vaunt that, we make ourselves vulnerable. So, really, what I'm on about is people's intelligence is a highly complex phenomenon, it's a multi dimensional highly complex phenomena that's already simplified by things like uh, our exam-oriented culture, by economics, by our voting systems. When we then add to that the fact that algorithms are delivering a huge part of the infrastructure of our lives, and those algorithms are explicitly based on these historical, simplified ways of looking at people, then we've amped up the uh the level of a possible simple-minded division of people and in my mind i believe it's one of the reasons that we see the polarized and divided world that we see today
1: is that does that mean that there's an inherent problem with algorithms which is the fact that they are essentially they from the very outset they're created to not 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 be dumb they're very clever things but just to minimize things in, in a way that has damaging effects for us as
3: people Well, algorithms uh, are are geared to take complicated stuff, simplify it, and generalize about it, right? And uh, that's fine when you're dealing with nuts and bolts. It's fine when you're dealing with uh, things that don't impact a lot of people's lives too much. But when you direct that at human beings, uh, simplification and generalization driven by a pursuit of value or power becomes a problem. And it's always been a problem. The thing is, is if you look at the early quantitative social science, you see that it it simplifies and generalized about people and was very useful for the advancement of our understanding of human beings. However, it was always the next door neighbor of racism. S- social science that quantifies people has always been a neighbor of uh, intolerant, divisive, uh, racist and misogynist and, and many other sorts of divisive uh, politics. It's, it's always been there. And there's always been this fight. What's changed? Uh, first of all, I think it's important for people to realize that history and I go on about the history. But what's changed is now those ideas have been turned into algorithms. Not uh, It's not that the programmers are racist. It's that the idea of simplifying and generalizing about people has a tendency towards this kind of thing. Now that that tendency is automated and ubiquitous, it's a much bigger problem.
1: As, uh, you know, for me, for me, just looking, when I see a piece of, uh, think of an algorithm, I don't think that it, you know, it's next to this insidious part of our human history.
3: Yeah, yeah, but but it really is. Uh, the, the, interestingly, uh, I'm a senior research fellow at UCL. Uh, uh, UCL is where eugenics was invented. The word eugenics was invented by Francis Galton. Uh, he was Charles Darwin's first cousin, and he, um, uh, you know, effectively endowed a uh, eugenics chair and a eugenics department at, at, at UCL when UCL became the the first nonconformist university. Uh, in in the UK, so this was a part of a, a, a progressive social agenda, and and you know the people who belonged to the Eugenic Society uh, that was associated with that early Department at UCL were people like Neville Chamberlain and John Maynard Keynes and Margaret Sanger. This is a progressive social agenda. Uh, unfortunately, then. Um, uh, it migrated to America and became involved in really horrible um, eugenic uh, policies there, and then ultimately to the Nazis and Nazi Germany. But alongside, at UCL, what the scientists were doing in the eugenics department was largely work on statistics, statistics about people. Uh, that was how they were trying to prop up the idea of eugenics. Many of the algorithms and ideas in algorithms uh, today... Were developed in that department. Right? You know, it's fundamental statistical al- algorithms were developed to view people through a simplifying lens. And those have now become a part of our algorithmic infrastructure. Those ideas were never very far from very dangerous social phenomena. But it needs to be said, the scientists working at UCL in those early days were trying to do good. Uh, and with the appropriate human intervention, algorithms can do good. But unfortunately, um the They have to be very tightly controlled because it 's all too easy for them to turn into tools of of real evil stuff as we saw in in uh, uh, America uh, before the second world war and, and in many ways after and certainly in Nazi Germany.
1: Would you be able to just quickly explain what eugenics is just for anyone who doesn 't quite know
3: Oh yeah, eugenics is a uh an idea that we can Change humanity for the better through selective breeding of human beings, which includes there 's what there 's so called positive eugenics, which which is encouraging people who we think are better to have more kids uh, and then there 's negative eugenics, which basically is preventing people uh, who we think are less good from having children or from even surviving and, and it needs to be said that there were uh, Quasi eugenic policies about sterilization of the mentally infirm, uh, well into the 1960s and 70s in the in the Western world. Uh, the term eugenics was a very acceptable progressive term up until World War II, because the Nazis made it so bad. The Nazis' policies were explicitly eugenic: the elimination of of Jews, the elimination of of um, uh, of Romani people. Uh, those ideas were ubiquitously accepted in a certain progressive uh, community across the Western world before World War II. After World War II, eugenics became a dirty word. No one used that term anymore because it was, it was so poorly thought of after the war. However, many of the philosophies survived uh, and the, certainly the idea of the quantification of people uh, it went on. And 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 survives to this day. And uh, there's there is a close relationship between uh, our algorithmic infrastructure in, in, emphasizing those ideas and uh, doing big data analysis. of People and the raise uh, the rise of racist science that we're seeing today. There there's a there's a new uh, what's so called racial realism that that is coming in uh, to science today. Which those things aren't unrelated. Uh, the flaw in both of those things is. People are highly complex phenomena. People aren't simple. And algorithms are, in fact, quite simple.
1: We
0: don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest
3: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Hola. Hello.
2: This call is being translated.
1: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. And so these, these things, these social sciences, these sort of things that they've created that sort of, uh, you know, were decided, you know, we said that these aren't good ways of measuring people. Is that sort of seeping back into things such as, you know, social media when we give lots of details and information about ourselves to our social networks and then, the, you know, they, they are working out what we are and using those for their own, own goals, as it were?
3: absolutely and and you see lots of instances of this um, sort of thing going on it It's sort of inevitable when you when you simplify people and generalize about them that you will come out with results that are offensive, and you see some of those online. Uh, the unprofessional hair controversy at Google, where uh, a few years ago someone discovered that if you typed unprofessional hair into a Google image search, you got pictures of black women exclusively—black women. So why? You know, the, the, you know, people have asked the question: Why? How, why did that happen? Uh, I believe the reason is that um, the shape uh, image recognition algorithms. Uh, are based on very simple things. They're based on things like color, size, and shape, effectively, implemented through a lot of statistics and a lot of mathematical functions. Well, think about color, size, and shape of human hair. And I think anyone will realize that the natural color, size, and shape of hair is particularly recognizable for certain groups of people, particularly black women, not for black men so much, given modern hairstyles. But for black women, large, voluminous, curly hair is very commonplace. And therefore, the algorithm was able to find that and focus on it. And it got tied to the idea of unprofessional because there were probably some sites out there that had some pictures of unprofessional hair. And those were the most recognizable pictures for the algorithm to pick up on. That's the reason. So what you see in that controversy is this idea of simplification and generalization about people connecting to these things that we think of as racism. And if you think about it, it's like this. Uh, What is racism except tying a simple visual feature of a person to a complex and meaningful human concept like intelligence or worth or professionalism? So, you know, I guess the positive side of that is this. It should, why should anybody be asking a question about unprofessional hair and, and and you know this prompts the whole question of what does it mean for hair to be unprofessional
1: yeah. it's, does that mean so does that mean that the, the the algorithm itself was created in a way that could be perceived racist or it's just a, a you know something it's that's a, been overlooked
3: and this is the thing that i'm really on about are there people uh, yeah, yeah let me let me preface this to say are there people who uh are, are, is there too, too little diversity in the programmer community and therefore uh, bias in that community? Absolutely. Are there people out there trying to manipulate the Internet to have uh, effectively racist results on our politics? Absolutely. But the overlooked phenomenon, the pho- phenomenon that people really need to see, is that that algorithm was not programmed to be racist. That algorithm was programmed to simplify and generalize about image That's what it was programmed to do. And that's a useful thing. But when you point it at people, what do you get? You get results like that. That's the the missing element that people really need to understand. Algorithms simplify and generalize. When that's pointed at people, we get uh, phenomena that we think uh, progressive people think are very
1: bad. I, so i can i can see how when an algorithm is pointed at something that has a very sort of human context that it, it can have these results that even though i guess to the algorithm are perfectly correct they're just you know, abhorrent to us does it have the same effect in things that aren't related to people so for instance you know i'm thinking just of something like a self-driving car
3: yeah um Yes. Uh, the, the bottom line is uh, I think now we're seeing the fall of the hype cycle about self-driving cars. And I think uh, there was a recent New York Times report that said that uh, the big three auto companies are beginning to admit that self-driving cars are further out in the future than, in the future than they thought. And the reason is that detecting the unforeseen is really a lot hard, harder than people uh, thought it was. Uh, I was talking about this years ago. I think I expected this to come. And the thing about the unforeseen is this. this people, because of the complexity of their lives and the way they behave, occasionally do things you don't expect. If, uh, if all the cars on the road were robots controlled by robots, then self-driving cars would be really easy. But the world that that cars drive through is a human world, and therefore it's highly complex. So effectively, we have the same problem. The simplification of these complex human phenomena is harder than we think. And uh, in self-driving cars, because the car companies don't want cars ever running people over, that's blocking the progress of of that technology. And I think it's probably going to block it really quite severely for a very long time. Uh, one of the, the things I say to people is this is um, you know, if you've got 100 self-driving cars on the road, it's very sensible to say, OK, for safety and for efficiency, if they're going largely to the same place anyway as lots of cars are, just hook them together so that, that, that they're, they're you know, hooked together physically so they can't cause any uh, additional chaos. Well, then you start thinking. Well, just put turn the engine on one in one of them on and turn the engines and all the others off because why run several engines? Because it's less efficient. And then what you have is a train. And and so you start thinking, why are we working so hard on self-driving cars when we have uh, failing train infrastructure? It, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to me.
1: <laughs> so just on the. Um... On the point of uh, the, the you know the algorithms and the fact that these these things are happening, what can we do to stop you know it getting any worse now? Uh,
3: there's a lot of things to do. One is uh, there's a profound realization we've got to make about uh, the first thing is understanding, and I've talked a little bit about trying to understand algorithms better, and, and you know it's 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 not that hard to understand uh, algorithms are. Uh, there's a lot of math there. There's a lot of programming there. But the, the stuff about simplifying people and about that history—if if, if people just you know learn the history of of how people are simplified mathematically and how close that's been to racism—it becomes really ra- rather obvious. So understanding is the first step. Uh, the, the the second step is that we need to realize that in simplifying people, we've often simplified them down to the idea of driving value as a, as a, as a singular goal, uh, and, and the idea of things like survival of the fittest as being the, the way that systems evolve. Uh, that's not really an accurate portrayal of evolution, and value seeking is not really an accurate portrayal of economics. is is becoming increasingly obvious, and by shift away from those kind of uh, singular, unipolar, optimizing sort of ways of looking at the world, we can shift towards other perspectives. And the perspective I uh, outline in the book is one that balances. The idea of uh, doing better along some metric, some value seeking, with the idea of diversity and mixing of ideas and uh, behaviors and things like that. And I mean that not just as a hallmark card about diversity, but really I I mean that as uh, a technical phenomenon. And if you balance those two, there are certain kinds of algorithms I've worked with that show that you can reach a more productive evolutionary system. And I think we need to do the science to basically understand how do we encourage our algorithmic infrastructure to encourage uh, a a combination of diversity and optimization that causes effective social uh, evolution. But I think both those elements have to be there. And those elements then turn into things like how do we regulate? What kind of corporate ethics do we have around algorithms? And ultimately, how do we behave as individuals in interacting with algorithms? So if we have that understanding and uh, we begin to understand what algorithms are doing in our society, what should we do as individuals? And I have some suggestions about that too, particularly about uh, how we, as, as social media participants, can change our behavior to, to try to make things a bit better.
1: Mm. What sort of things should we do then? What, what would be your suggestions there?
3: Well, the 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 thing about preserving diversity. Some of our work has basically shown that the dynamics of social media. Uh, are very particular, and they tend to lead towards polarization. Uh, the, the, the thing is, is that people like to think that on the Internet we're all broadcasters, but we're really not. We're narrowcasters to our connected friend group, really. And those narrowcasting channels combined together across a massive network lead naturally to polarizations, particularly when they're mediated by algorithmic curators. So in order to overcome the influence of those algorithmic curators, what we need to do is be more human. And there's a few things you can do. One is you can friend more broadly and more tolerantly. I know it's difficult to do that in a very polarized time, but if you've got someone who said one thing that offended you, but you basically think is an okay guy... Unblock that person, refriend that person, because the greater connectivity will make the digital segregation less possible. The other thing is, the algorithms share uh, based on very simplified criteria. They basically look at headlines and look at keywords and headlines and look for things that they think will cause emotive click-through reactions. Don't do that, right? Do be different from that. Don't click, don't share just on the headline. Don't like just on the headline. Read through. And I also say to people, familiarize yourself with the content creator, the human content creator. Like if uh, start liking some writers, start following particular authors, or particular organizations or particular news sources. Uh, And uh, there's a lot of results that say uh, it's much better to share stuff that you think is good yourself than to simply batter back at people about stuff you dislike about their stuff. So try to be more positive in your sharing. Try to be more human driven in your sharing. Don't, I think it's good to add a comment and may, try to make that comment as insightful as you can because that humanity injected into the system helps. Retard the algorithmic effect. Now, ultimately, I think regulation and uh, corporate ethics are going to be necessary because of the level of influence involved. But we can, through better understanding and better behavior ourselves, have some effect on the dynamics today.
1: Um, so, are, are we going to be the arbiters of change there, or does it is it going to have to be? You know, we can do that a lot, but is that going to be influenced by the the tech giants, or is it by government? Is someone going to have to step in and say, No, we so, need to put put something down so on this
3: someone's going to have to step in uh if you look at the evolution of broadcast media uh you know uh, as radio uh, grew up uh, it was it was rapidly realized that we had to be a cautious about fairness and about manipulation in print media and then in broadcast media. And ultimately, that's going to have to happen in social media as well. It, it, it's inevitable. Um, you know, and in fact, we're going to have to move a little bit backwards because back in the uh, in America, we used to have the, the fairness doctrine, which was effectively a, a, a way that broadcasters were licensed, was they had to convince the Federal Communications Commission, a bunch of human beings, that they were being fair in their news coverage, that they were not not manipulating people or presenting only one side of the news. That docu- doctrine dissolved back during the Reagan administration and has not come back and has been fought against uh, uh, in Congress by one of the two parties, not to get too political about it since then. And uh, we see the artifacts of that in broadcast media, certainly in America and, and to some extent everywhere. Uh, but in the Online media, it's even worse because there is effectively no regulation of any kind and no suggestion of fairness. You add into that the value-seeking potential of algorithms that want you to click through because that click-through generates a micropayment for somebody, then you have a real problem. And that's where we are today. And I really think that won't be fixed through, um, I I think, our individual grassroots efforts. We could. I think that uh, corporates can try, and I think there are people within corporations who are trying to change things, but ultimately, corporations have to to deliver value for shareholders. That's the algorithm to which they are responding, and they're legally mandated to. So ultimately, change at a level of governance has to take place, or we won't really see uh, real, effective society, evolutionary uh, media again.
1: It seems to me that the when you say like you go online and you see it's it's unregulated, you can see that because you know you've got Twitter streams and Facebooks and everything seem very polarized one way and the other. Like if you were to look at my 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 Facebook feed, it would be very different to someone else who had a different opinion. Um, and it doesn't seem like that's that that bridge is being crossed. Is there any any you know is there a cause for optimism? Can we look forward to a, a future where these algorithms aren't causing such an issue?
3: I, I tell you, uh, the big cause for optimism for me is this: is I think that from the advent of uh, that eugenics movement I talked about, and possibly even earlier, uh, the idea of quantifying people—the uh, this idea that uh, you know penetrates into the social sciences and particularly into economics and then into politics—the idea of you know, quantifying people and driving simple value as a way to kind of make the world a better place. Uh, I think that now that that is infrastructural, now that that's in our, uh, our information superhighways, in effect, we can begin to see the flaws in it. You know, it's like now it's manifest. It's like, OK, our media is now entirely online and entirely, um, uh, you know, algorithmically mediated. Well, look what it's doing to us. You know, we can see that now. And I, I hope through what I'm trying to say in the book is people can realize that uh, people are complex and that the quantification of them, although useful sometimes, always has to be uh, uh, has to be considered in light of a more human perspective. And I think ultimately this could lead to a real deeper understanding of the nature of humanity fundamentally and its interaction with technology for the long term. So my optimism is that Effectively, things have now reached ahead and it will allow us to move into a new era of kind of understanding human complexity in a a really deeper scientific way.
2: That was Robert Elliott Smith talking about the dangerous biases built into our algorithms. His book, Rage Inside the Machine, The Prejudice of Algorithms and How to Stop the Internet Making Bigots of Us All, is available now. If you want to skirt round an algorithm and go for a good old recommendation from a friendly human, why not pick up a copy of BBC Science Focus magazine? In the October issue, we find out how gut-friendly probiotics and prebiotics could help treat anxiety and depression. There is, of course, much more inside, but if you can't wait until you pick up a copy, then why not treat yourself to another episode of the Science Focus podcast? Might I suggest my recent interview with Richard Dawkins, where we discuss whether we can live in a world without religion? And don't forget to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the history of science and eugenics and its impact on our modern world, head to BBC iPlayer and watch Eugenics, Science's Greatest Scandal. Look out for our interview with Adam Pearson, co-host of the two-part series in the November issue of BBC Science Focus magazine.
0: Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.